Welcome. Uh, was a lieutenant colonel, selected for colonel, and started flying in 2007 with them. And then I'm, and then you started flying in 2007. In 2014 is when President Obama. So after seven years of flying Air Force One as as a line pilot, in 2014 is when President Obama appointed him as the 14th commander. This is your captain speaking. We've been cleared for departure. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. We'll be flying at an altitude of 30,000 feet. Flight crew, please prepare for departure. This week's episode of the Medal of Honor podcast is the widow of Air Force pilot David Van Alzer. This gold star spouse, Alice Nally, Dart, Van Alzer of Washington, D.C. is originally from Redmond, Washington. Like most young parents, Allie and Dave were busy raising two energetic young girls, Kate and Caroline. In addition to having a happy family, they had other big dreams. In Ollie's case, it was to create better looking t-shirts for her girls' gymnastic events. Driven by pure passion and creativity, Allie Van Alzer launched Wear Your Spirit Warehouse from her kitchen table in 2004. Meanwhile, David was pursuing his dreams as an Air Force officer. The girls were growing up and both Ollie's dreams and David's were coming true. Where Your Spirit Warehouse outgrew the kitchen table and in 2010 moved into a commercial space. In early 2014, David achieved his dream. He became the 14th presidential pilot of the United States and the commander of Air Force One. Tragically, later that year, David was diagnosed with terminal cancer and eventually lost his battle in 2017. To honor David's legacy of service, Allie and her team are committed to excellence. They provide the highest standards of service possible to customers all over the country. Everyone knows what it feels like to have your spirit take flight and soar. That pure rush of happiness. My story has taught me that life is short and should be celebrated. Let's celebrate together. At this time I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. On behalf of the flight crew, thank you for flying with us and have a pleasant stay. So he was already in the military. He was a lieutenant. He was at his first duty station after UPT, undergraduate pilot training. He had done the route of ROTC through the University of Wisconsin, commissioned, received a pilot training slot, went to uh, Shepard Air Force Base in Texas for pilot training. And then he was at his first duty station at Fairchild Air Force Base. Meanwhile, while he was doing all of that, I had gone, was going to college for criminology, did undergraduate and graduate school at Washington State University, and I was working at the Spokane Police Department as a criminologist, and we had mutual friends that said, oh, we got to get these two together. So they set us up. I say they set us up on a blind date, but it was a group blind date because I was a criminologist. I worked robbery, homicide, and sex crime. That's kind of a dark place. I didn't know anything about the military. We didn't have any family members that were military other than my grandfather had flown B-17s in World War II and then uh, continued on in the reserve. But I was a young child when he was able to retire from the reserve and do all of that. So I didn't really have any experience other than every now and then they'd take us to brunch at the Oak Club at Fairchild. That was my whole military exposure, right? So I was like, well, yeah, but I'm not going to go out with a complete stranger by myself. So we're going to do this as a group thing. But we did. 
We went on a group date, and he was charming and lovely and wonderful, and then asked me out. We went out to dinner about a week later, and um, we both thought it would be fun for a couple months, but never thought it would last. And 20 years, two kids, <laughs> it lasted. <laughs> so, um, But yeah, so we dated for a year, and he was coming up on time to PCS, so he kept saying, well, could you live here? Could you live here? would you move here? And I had a really good career and I was working to become uh, employed by the FBI. And so I, I did not give him an ultimatum by any stretch of the imagination, but I basically said, I can follow you, follow you anywhere, but I'm not going to do that without a commitment. Because I wasn't going to give up because I knew a career in the FBI and a career in the military didn't work well together. And so I wasn't going to give up everything I'd worked for and give up my career to, you know, follow him around the Air Force if he wasn't serious about it. So um, uh, he didn't propose right away that, like I said, it wasn't an ultimatum or anything that way. But eventually he, he proposed. and. Uh, we got married, and when we got back from our honeymoon, we were we were quarantined by the Center of Disease Control on our honeymoon. That was interesting. And then when we got back from our honeymoon, he went in, signed in off of leave, and he came out, and he had this funny look on his face. And I said, what? And he's like, uh, I'm going to be TDY for the next four months, and we're moving to Illinois. And that was the start of my military journey with him. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so brand new wife, first PCS, and he was going to be gone the four months leading up to it. So I got to handle the PCS by myself. Oh my gosh, what a wake up call was that? Right. That was that was kind of a cold bucket of water, but um, but it was great. I mean, it it was fine, and and I got it all done, and he got home about four days before. The mover showed up and uh, just made the best of it. So I bet that made the next PCS move a bit interesting because you knew more about the PCS moving than he did. Well, he had done a couple PCSs already, oh. so I, could, okay. I can't say. Well, I mean, he moved from home to pilot training, then from pilot training to the first base. So he, he you know, and of course, knowing the military ways, by then he was, a lieutenant. Um, by the time we got married, he was a captain. So, you know, he had some, not a huge amount of time. You don't spend too many, too many years in those ranks, but obviously as the military member, much more knowledge than me. Yeah. Man, I just, I mean, I'm a single and I hated PTSD. I couldn't imagine having a whole family. So what was it like? At what point, so where in y'all's career um, did the children come into the picture? And, and what was that like, moving a family around? Yeah, so we did um, seven moves in 11 years. And so that first move to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, we had no children. Uh, we did our next PCS to Travis Air Force Base in California, still no children. While we were at Travis, we had our oldest daughter. And she was about a year old when we made our next PCS. And that was from 
Travis to Andrews, just outside of Washington, D.C. So that was a cross-country trek. So that was the first time with a one-year-old. So that was the first time, you know, the military doesn't move cars. So two cars, one-year-old baby. Here we go. (laughs) Um, So from Andrews, we went up to Rhode Island. And then from Rhode Island, we went back to Fairchild. By then, we had two kids. So we had our second daughter at Andrews. So Andrews to Rhode Island, two kids. That was a short one. That was just a one-day trip. And then Rhode Island back to Fairchild. So that was cross-country again. And then Fairchild back to Andrews. So that was cross-country again. So I have a lot of tips for how to move with children. (laughs) And in the day and age of not having cell phones and iPads and, and all of that. So... Um, they say experience is the best teacher, and like I guess you got a lot of of that. Yeah, yeah. I have I have tips for packing and boxes, as most military spouses do. Um, but yeah, anytime I have friends that are non-military that are getting ready to move, I'm like, all right, here's what you need to do. Let's go. <laughs> Man, I can't even imagine. No, <laughs> I have a hard enough time doing it by myself. Let alone having having a spouse and kids. That's just that's a lot. Man. So it sounds like which may have been a good thing for you guys, that a a good chunk of y'all's time was on the West Coast. And and with y'all being from that area you being from that area, you, you know, you're close enough to family to be able to see them but far enough away to where they don't barge in on dinner. Um, yeah, every night. So it was, yeah, we were pretty lucky, especially at the times that we had kids. So Dave's whole family is in Wisconsin and my family's in Washington state. So, um, you know, when, when we had our first daughter, it was a quick airplane trip down to California to, to see us or for us to go home. Uh, Dave flew C5s at that time. So he was gone a lot. Uh, and C5s have a fairly unreliable schedule because they break a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, so I was able to grab the girls and go up and see my parents and, and get help and support that way. And and uh, when we were at Scott, we were really close to his family, which was nice. We were about a seven-hour car ride, which was really nice. Um, I have to say, everybody says, where was you been your favorite place to live? What do you like? Where don't you like to live? And I can honestly say everywhere we lived, we were just of a mindset of let's go explore and see and do. And of course, we have some of our favorites. But everywhere we lived, there was positive and there was good that we could go do. Um, and so I, I struggle a little bit with people like, oh, I hate this place and things that way. I'm like, it's kind of a mindset. You can always find something you love mm-hmm. about where you're yeah. at. It doesn't have to be your favorite, but um, mm-hmm. we were always able to find something that we loved about every place we lived. Yeah, I think my first my first taste of that, my first duty station was in Oklahoma, which was pretty um, interesting. And, and I say interesting because I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina. And you you fill out this thing at the beginning of your career before going to basic training, saying, you know, what are your top three stateside locations that you would like to go, and then pick an overseas um, assignment. And so, being from South Carolina, I picked North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Those were my three stateside things. 
Um, and then my overseas assignment I picked was um, Germany. So I go to basic training, I do my job training, and I get orders to go to Oklahoma. Like, I just, I don't get it. Um, but, you know, I I learned pretty quickly not to figure out the common sense part of things like that because there's not really a lot uh, of that there. Um, but um, I, I I remember doing some things in Oklahoma and experiencing things that I would not have experienced otherwise. And when I got orders to go to Germany, there's there's a person who had just come to my unit from Germany. And I asked her, do you have any recommendations of things of like to go see or go do or whatever? And she said, and she said she wasn't, uh, she didn't have a whole lot, but just had a couple things. She said, but do not do what I did. She said, I was a homebody. And now that I'm back here in the U.S., I realized I could have gone from country to country like it was nothing. And so I did that. I did not ever take any leave when I was, when I was in Germany. So those three day, four day weekends, I was in some place in Germany or, you know, in a, in another country. Mm-hmm. Just getting, getting to see places. And so that's why when, when asked what my favorite place was, I stayed Germany because I got to experience so many different cultures, but I had to get out and do it. Otherwise, right. I would have been like, yeah, I lived in Germany. And people say, what is that like? Oh, I don't know. I went to work and then I went home. Right, right. We were never able to do an overseas assignment, which I wish we had. We tried. We tried hard to, we actually really wanted to go to Germany. Um, It's the last name of Van Holzer. How can you not? But, uh, (laughs) yeah, you see my last name, right? (laughs) Thank yeah, but uh, it it never was in the cards for us. So, yeah. but we did travel. We've we've done an extensive amount of travel and taken the girls on a, on a fair bit of travel as well. So, yeah. So my next question is: I hear that your husband was what the fourteenth? Is it, was he the fourteenth? Fourteenth, yes. So talk about what that was like for him to get that assignment and what that meant for you guys. How how did that? Yeah, so he was the 14th presidential pilot of the United States and commander of Air Force One. Um, We are currently on number 16. So in the history of Air Force One, there have been 16 commanders. Um, It is not a job that you specifically apply for. The, The career path to that airplane, there are about... At any one time, there are about eight pilots that fly, but there's one that's the commander and uh, left seat on the 747 when the president's on board. So you have to have flown DV airlift before. So most of them have flown in the first or the 99th at Andrews, which is Air Force Two, the first lady, secretaries of state, joint chiefs. Um, And then uh, so... Before that, he flew KC-135s and C-5s. And when he was in the C-5 is when 9-11 happened. And my oldest was two months old, and he was just gone, like many people. Not complaining. It is. That is what you sign up for. Uh, But he was gone. and uh, But he always had had a dream of wanting to fly 
Air Force One. But he says it's like winning the lottery. The odds of that happening are so slim because there's so few pilots that do it. And all the stars have to line up. Like, first you have to apply and get hired into uh, DV Airlift at Andrews. So Air Force Two uh, and the others that I described. The first are the 99th Airlift Squadrons at Andrews. Um, your timing has to be right to do that. They have to be hiring. They hold regular hiring boards, but uh, you have to be uh, a certain level in your flying career. And then also uh, they have to be high up hiring board and your current commander has to be willing to release you to go do that. Um, and so uh, about hmm, eight to 12 months after 9-11 had happened, uh, he had applied. Uh, he was granted an interview. His commander agreed to release him. He went out and he got hired. He got hired into the first airlift squadron, which is the blue and white 757s at Andrews. And uh, we did that for three years. And from there, he actually went to, on exchange to the Naval War College. That's what took us up to Rhode Island. And then he was supposed to come back. And at that time, uh, the way it works to get into Air Force One is you don't apply. There's no formal, for the for pilot positions, I'm not sure about the other positions, but for pilot positions, you don't apply. There's no formal. Generally speaking, when they need additional pilots to augment the current crew due to uh, OPSEC, uh, they will go to the 1st and the 99th and talk to those commanders and say, hey, who should we pull up to just come fly with us? Now, when you do that, you never fly on the primary, you fly on the backup. But it's kind of an informal interview at that point. You're flying with them, they're checking out your skills, do they like you, can they spend days and weeks on the road with you? Because um, those guys are gone uh, a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. So, uh, he had gotten that kind of that tap on the shoulder, come fly with us, so on and so forth. But then nothing really had become of it. And so, uh, we went up and did, we, we did the Naval War College and then about halfway through that time up there, they called him and said, Hey, we'd really like you to come back, uh, and fly Air Force One. And he was beside himself. Uh, but the Air Force personnel system, the way it is, had different plans for him. And so they actually sent us to Fairchild for a year first. And then we went back to Andrews. And at that point in 2007, in in June of 2007, he came back and began flying with them. So once you... Yeah, so he was the 14th presidential pilot of the United States and commander of Air Force One. Um, we are currently on number 16. So in the history of Air Force One, there have been 16 commanders. Um, it is not a job that you specifically apply for. The, the career path to that airplane, there are about, at any one time, there are about eight pilots that fly, but there's one that's the commander. And... Uh, left seat on the 747 when the president's on board. So you have to have flown DV airlift before. So most of them have flown in the first or the 99th at Andrews, which is the Air Force Two, the First Lady, Secretaries of State, Joint Chiefs. Um, and then, uh, so before that, he flew KC-135s and C-5s. And when he was in the C-5, 
uh, is when 9-11 happened and he, my oldest was two months old and he was just gone. Like many people not complaining. It is, that is what you sign up for. Uh, but he was gone and, uh, but he always had had a dream of wanting to fly Air Force One. But he says it's like winning the lottery. The odds of that happening are so slim because there's so few pilots that do it. And all the stars have to line up. Like first you have to apply and get hired into uh, DV Airlift at Andrews. So Air Force Two uh, and the others that I described. The first are the 99th Airlift squadrons at Andrews. Um, your timing has to be right to do that. They have to be hiring. They hold regular hiring boards, but uh, you have to be uh, a certain level in your flying career. And then also uh, they have to be high hiring board and your current commander has to be willing to release you to go do that. Um, and so uh, about um, eight to 12 months after 9-11 had happened, uh, he had applied, uh, he was granted an interview, his commander agreed to release him, he went out and he got hired, he got hired into the first airlift squadron, which is the blue and white 757s at Andrews, and uh, we did that for three years, and from there he actually went to, on exchange at the Naval War College, that's what took us up to Rhode Island, and then he was supposed to come back, and at that time, uh, the way it works to get into Air Force One is you don't apply. There's no formal for the for pilot positions. I'm not sure about the other positions, but for pilot positions, you don't apply. There's no formal. Generally speaking, when they need additional pilots to augment the current crew due to uh, OPSEC, uh, they will go to the first and the 99th and talk to those commanders and say, hey, who should we pull up to just come fly with us? Now, when you do that, you never fly on the primary. You fly on the backup. But it's kind of an informal interview at that point. You're flying with them. They're checking out your skills. Do they like you? Can they spend days and weeks on the road with you? Because um, those guys are gone uh, a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. So uh, he had gotten that kind of that tap on the shoulder, come fly with us, so on and so forth. But then nothing really had become of it and so uh, we went up and did we we did the naval war college and then about halfway through that time up there they called him and said hey we'd really like you to come back uh, and fly air force one and he was beside himself uh, but the air force personnel system the way it is had different plans for him and so they actually sent us to fairchild for a year first and then we went back to andrews and at that point in 2007 in in June of 2007, he came back and began flying with them. Uh, although it also means you're likely not going to advance your career anymore rank-wise. Uh, so at that time, he uh, was a lieutenant colonel, selected for colonel, and started flying in 2007 with them. And then in 2014 is when President Obama, so after seven years of flying Air Force One as, as a line pilot, in 2014 is when President Obama appointed him as the 14th commander. I can't imagine being in that community and then 
having the president say, I want you to be my pilot. When he came home and told you that, what was that like? Yeah, it was certainly a sense of pride. And they have a continuity plan. And so they don't take the eight pilots and put them in front of the president and say, pick one. And then he picks one. There's a series of grooming and uh, different positions and things that way. It was not a foregone conclusion. We're not going to say that by any stretch of the imagination. But about 18 months out, it was a pretty good odds that this is what was going to happen. So then it's kind of when is number 13 going to retire? What is this going to look like? What's the time frame and all of that? And so, and then, yes, of course, the final, when the president says, yep, you're my guy. It's certainly a sense of pride, pride for our family, pride for Dave. Dave didn't have any other hobbies. Aviation was his hobby. It was his career. He had wanted to be a pilot since he was about eight years old. It was something he worked very hard for, and it was something he really, truly was a master of. He had received other awards and other honors for his skills and programs that he brought to the Air Force and things that way. So it was just the culmination. It was the, all right, 2014, he was planning on retiring in, two, in 2022 when our youngest graduates from high school, and then we were going to go travel and do our thing. So it was kind of that, all right, yep, I made it. This is the pinnacle of my career. I reached that goal that I really thought was unattainable. And it was amazing. We were on top of the world. Where did you go from be, really being at the top of your field? I mean, what a, what a privilege. Is, and, and it doesn't matter what anybody's political stance is. To know that the person in that office wants me to be their pilot, that's an honor. I mean, I can't even imagine. So I'm sure that he had a lot of those moments of, I'm flying Air Force One. Yeah. And it's a really tight-knit unit. As you can imagine, the stressors and the level of perfection, <laughs> you uh -huh. say, to move that mission uh, is pretty incredible. Uh, lots of, I've taken just as an observer, a fly on the wall, many leadership lessons, not just from him, but from everybody. And the, the level of dedication and pride and in workmanship and things that way. One of the things, when you are hired as a maintainer of Air Force One, your first day on the job is to wax the airplane. The airplane is hand waxed after every mission before it goes out again. So if you can imagine, Air Force One from nose to tail is longer than the White House. And it is as tall, approximately as tall as a six-story building. And it gets hand waxed. So imagine hand waxing a building every time it goes out and flies. Dave was also one of the most humble people that I know. You would think, and, and yeah, pilots kind of have a... Have a uh, reputation for being arrogant and Gucci boys and you know mm -hmm. all of those things that you hear um, but they're not 
And to some, yes, in some ways they are, but in some ways they have to be, and then they're not. They're also very, very right. humble people as well. And Dave was very humble to the point with the girls, he would, even before he became the commander, when he was just in the position, he's like, you know, you don't need to go tell all your friends what I do. It's a job. It is a position in the Air Force. It is not political. Yeah, it's cool. It's a job that ends up, you know, on TV and, and is shiny and bright. But I'm still a military officer serving my country. And that's what the job is. Here is Dave at the top of his career. He's fulfilling his lifelong dream by being a pilot, an Air Force officer, a pilot in the Air Force, and flying Air Force One. He gets vetted through this whole process and is now commander, presidential commander on Air Force One. February of 2014, change of command. He becomes the commander of the presidential airlift group. Life is great. I kind of describe it as that uh, we lived this idyllic life. Like you'd look in a snow globe, this perfect, beautiful little scene with the perfect family and all of this. And then one Saturday morning in May, he had just got home from picking my daughter up from a church lock-in. They'd gone to Starbucks. They came home. We were enjoying some coffee and danishes. And he walked over to me. I was at the kitchen sink. And he walked over to me and he said, look at what my ankle's doing. And his ankle was twitching. And he had been having pain down his right leg. But we thought it was sciatic nerve pain. Not uncommon. He had just his uh, the annual clean bill of health and all of this. And as he said that, I watched what looked like a tidal wave roll up his body. And it was his muscles contracting. And when it hit his chest, he looked at me and said, I can't breathe. Now, he was 6'3", 200 pounds, and he collapsed onto me. And I did the best I could to lay, to lay him down gently onto the floor. But then he had a grand mal seizure uh, in front of me and my two daughters. My daughters were 9 and 12 at the time. My oldest daughter went called 911 and then ran to get help from a neighbor. And I uh, attended to Dave took him to our local hospital, then medevaced him to Walter Reed. Two days later, he had seven hours of brain surgery. And when the doctor came out, I asked him, I said, is it what you think it is? And he said, well, we don't know. We don't have pathology back. And I said, well, you've been doing this a long time. What do you think? And he said, yes, I think it's glioblastoma. And I said, I don't know what that is. What does that mean? And he said, if I were you, I'd go start, I'd retire. And I said, how long? And he said, 14 months. Two weeks later, we got official pathology back. Dave had grade four glioblastoma, which is primary brain cancer. And um, they, they gave him 14 months to live. Uh, he remained in command until February of 2016. So as you can tell, he lived longer than 14 months. He had four brain surgeries, removing tumors. And it was after the third brain surgery that he started to lose his ability to speak and communicate. And that's when he 
decided he needed to step down. He could no longer effectively command the unit. Now, after the very first seizure, he was no longer able to ever fly the airplane again because he'd had a seizure. But he was able to be on the airplane as a mission commander and continue to command the mission and the unit. So February of 2016, he stepped down as commander. He had one more brain surgery after that in June. So on August 22nd, they wanted to schedule him for an appointment, and that was his 47th birthday. And I said, we will only do an appointment on the 22nd if you're going to give us good news. And the doctor said, I'll see you on the 23rd. So we kind of knew. And on August 23rd, they placed him in hospice. He still, because he was so young and so very healthy, he passed in November 4th of 2016. So the best way I can describe it, I said, you know, when he took command, we had this idyllic, perfect life, like a perfect snow globe. And that Saturday morning, somebody picked up that snow globe and they shook it and they shook it really hard. And when everything settled, all of the pieces were still there, but nothing was in the same place. Like, what, ha- my, what happened between August 23rd and November 4th? Bum, bum, bum.